1: Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, we get an understanding of Russia and Ukraine's complicated history. Foreign policy expert Dr. Evgenia Gaber with Carleton University takes us through Ukrainian and Russian identity and the importance of the Black Sea. Now also on the Black Sea is Odessa. So we're joined live with Hannah Shalist to give us some updates on the progress of Ukrainians pushing back Russians. And will Odessa become a devastated city like some others that are very close by? Canadians are dumping Russian vodka in solidarity with Ukraine. But what goes into Ukraine? Ukrainian vodka. Catherine Valenga, Canadian Ukrainian founder of Zerkova Vodka, helps us understand what makes it all so special, why it matters that we all take a stand in this, and how the vodka in general's importance to Ukraine and the rest of the world, and how we can support them all across Canada. Their country is making big sacrifices to support Ukraine.
0: This is the Shift Podcast.
1: There are so many different ways that we are learning here on the shift and the shift head community at nighttime on how we can help Ukraine. And there is a Canadian company that has deep roots in Ukraine that I want to introduce you to. That has so many levels. I'm just going to acknowledge the fact that we're not going to get there in one conversation, Catherine. I don't think we are. And so I'm not going to force it. We're going to get to where we get to with the basics today, and then bring this conversation back. Catherine uh, is with a vodka company. And vodka is... Is incredibly uh, deeply embedded in Ukraine. Now, here's the catch. This is what I've learned, and Catherine will correct me in just one second as we introduce um, Zerkova 1 and Zerkova together, uh, the vodka, the Canadian vodka, that's Ukrainian vodka. Vodka as a word is a Russian word. Ukrainians actually have a different name for it, but it's actually rooted in Ukraine more than it is in Russia. Wild, right? But that's the case. Catherine, how are you?
0: Shane, um, thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm really, I really appreciate it. I'm very grateful for you.
1: Oh, thank you very much, and I am grateful for you too, Catherine. And I have had an opportunity to share time uh, before this conversation, and so I've learned a few things, Catherine. Um, we are going to talk about what Zarkova is doing as a company, what you guys are doing as a company at the uh, at the LCBO in Ontario with the vodka. But there is insight that we can all Canadians can use if they don't have access to this particular vodka in the liquor store. We've heard the stories about liquor stores that are uh, passing on Russian vodka and serving Ukrainian vodka and all those things. Your family roots run deep. And I'm going to summarize a little bit of it. Uh, Grandparents, Soviet, Ukraine battles, work camps. I would love to get that whole storyline on the radio one day. But in the spirit of honoring the, the vodka work, to the point where your twin sister moved back from Canada to Ukraine because she just felt like home was calling her this really is your family isn't it
0: oh my gosh Th- this is you know um i'm first generation ukrainian i'm ukrainian canadian so like we were the first generation born in canada so so all of my family is from ukraine and um and I have spent half of my life living and working with Ukraine. So imagine like all the relations, like if, if you're listening, like imagine all the relationships that you develop over 25 years, all the people that you care about, that's how I feel about Ukraine. Is there just thousands of people and an entire country um, that have been part of my life for, you know, my entire life.
1: Zerkova vodka is special for so many different reasons. Number one, uh, it's been a passion project of yours. It is Ukrainian, now correct me, it's Ukrainian distilled vodka that's a Canadian company and sold here. And it's very special because of how you honor the history of vodka and where it comes from. So, can you share that little part of your dream of how you've created this incredibly special uh, vodka from the roots in the history of vodka in Ukraine and then how you've brought it to Canada?
0: Definitely, definitely. So, so um, Shane, imagine, you know, 25 years ago, um, my husband and I leave corporate Canada, we decide to move to Ukraine to be part of the birth of a nation. You know, it was like the wild, wild east. Okay. So as you said, vodka is very much a part of Ukrainian culture. You know, we all have experienced the toasting traditions, the meals, the family, the fun, the entertainment. And, and how we gather around the table. Um, what I was really shocked by that I had never known and in fact, it was like the world doesn't even know this. The world didn't know this. Ukrainians didn't know this um, was that when we were in, um, when we lived in Ukraine, we found out that modern day Ukraine contains the origins of vodka itself. So so, you know, I, there's so literally if I were to take you to the Polish Lithuanian, I mean, sorry, the Polish Museum of Vodka in Warsaw, they would say these words that. Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth is the birthplace of vodka, is the start of vodka, and it started in a place called Cherkaska, which is now in modern day Ukraine. That is what they say at the Museum of, Hist- of Vodka in Poland. So so, when we hear about the Polish Vodka war, Wars of the 1970s, and, and there's a lot that we can get into about that, the fact of the matter is that it's this particular place, this, this X on the, on the map that they were speaking about. So, you know, I actually had really, I, I've, I actually have the, the authentic history of vodka that we have pulled together from all of our research. And, um, and it, it, it's absolutely fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. So our desire was to bring what we had discovered to the rest of the world. And, and being Ukrainian-Canadian, we, when we moved back to Canada, we thought we're going to start in Canada. Because Canadians can really hear this message, and um, and and so that's what we have really done. It's it's about giving voice to those that had no voice. It's about sharing a discovery. And when you're when you're looking at the world of spirits, like think about it. Every spirit has a home. You know, tequila and Mexico, right? Bourbon, Kentucky, vodka is the number one spirit in the world, and it. And where is the home and the origins of vodka? What is the truth about vodka? And we discovered the truth and that's basically what we've, it, it's all been about. So my passion really project has been about creating a global brand that honors Ukraine. That is is—is the first, you know, that is a, a vodka produced in Ukraine, and and to to bring forth the birthplace of vodka and make that connection to Ukraine and to tell people the truth about vodka.
1: I love it, and you guys are doing something very very special. So you take this 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 vodka, uh, this this long history of vodka in Ukraine. You bring it with Zirkova vodka to. Uh, to Canada, and uh, we'll get into some of the fun stuff about Zarkova, because there's two kinds uh, in a second. But you, into support of Ukraine, you've taken your business and done something that I've never heard of before um, with the, with profits here in order to l- lead by example, if you will, to help out. What is going on with that?
0: Okay, so, so Shane, um, right now, um, uh, y- Ukraine is at a Critical time, as we see um, that Ukraine is fighting for its survival. It's fighting for its democracy. It's fighting for its freedom. And right now, um, it's all hands on deck. So, so what we see in Ukraine, and if I, if I were to take you to Ukraine, what would you what you would see is is a is a an entire population. That has one singular goal to to um, survive and to do all that they can to help ukraine and stand up to um, putin's armies and so what that means though is that if you're not part of the armed forces then how do you make a difference so what we see is the entire population the entire society engaged in that and that includes Business that includes IT programmers, that includes people that just have said, "I'm going to uh, volunteer for the, our territorial defense unit." This is my way of contributing. There are people that said, "I'm going to help, you know, refugees. Let's get the women and children out." My way of contributing is to 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 get children out. There's there's people that businesses that have said, "Let's come together and let's, you know." Um, Establish a warehouse in Poland, buy goods in EU, and deliver them directly to Ukrainians in Ukraine. So all the humanitarian aid and medical supplies that they need. So like it, it's like it, it is a self-organizing system with a singular goal of survival, and 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 it's it, it's extraordinary, and so it inspires me, and 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 I think that. Um, you know, we've seen all of the brave acts. We've seen Ukraine has captivated and inspired the world with their everyday actions of ordinary people. But this is that, that in the spirit of that, that inspires me. So, so when Ukraine was invaded within 24 hours, you know, the first day I cried and wailed and felt completely helpless, what can I do? Here in Canada, what can I do? The next day it was like, Catherine, get a hold of yourself. Ukraine is not crying, wailing, and and no, they don't have time for that. They're doing everything they can do to make a difference right now at this critical time. So that's what we decided as a team. I got my team together. We basically said, What can we do? What do we have to give? And it was like, okay, well, we have our vodka brand, we have. Our, like, what do we have to give? And we basically said, we're donating 100% of our profits on all sales. Um, that's profits. Eh? That's,
1: that's just not like a portion of the proceeds. No. It's not like, no. uh, this is like 100% of all the stuff, everything that's left over.
0: But, but Shane, what's really important is that thousands and thousands of companies in Ukraine are doing this. So mm-hmm. I am taking my example from them. They are who inspires me. So so, so, um, this is not anything new. This is what Ukrainian companies are doing.
1: Mm-hmm. And you know, it's funny that you bring that up, uh, Catherine, because I, I said that to one of our contacts, Mikhailo, who's there. Uh, his name is Mikhailo Zernikov. And he, um, he was chatting with us. And I said to him, I said, I feel silly. This feels like a trivial thing to share with you. I feel silly sharing this. But here we've got uh, business that are dumping out Russian vodka and selling Ukrainian vodka and all these different things that we're seeing. And he, he stopped me and he interrupted me. He said, Shane, it's not silly. He says, Ukrainians see that. And we it, it's inspiring to us to know that the world's behind us. So I'm learning this Ukrainian spirit. I'm learning this, that there is so much more that we can do, even if that we might think it's a little bit silly on our end. This is a very, what you're proposing was is, uh is very clear, <laughs> definitive in what uh, in what you're creating, in creating to do here, which is which is fantastic. But for everybody who's not in Ontario, because you can get zerkova at the LCBO, you had shared with me earlier. You said make dinner for someone who's Ukrainian, and I found that fascinating, because for everyone else, there are fantastic ways that we can help out. The UCC, uh, the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, and other organizations—they will, uh, you know, be taking uh, assistance and help, and you can literally. Uh, help out that way. We chatted about it on Sunday on the shift. We chatted about uh, Airbnb, right? Removing fees and people are just renting places just to put money into people's pockets. So there are ways to get money into Ukraine directly. And one of the things that I found most fascinating when you said that is if you can find out from the local Ukrainian community, the weight and the burden of the people looking at family, looking at all these things that are going on, just the opportunity to not have to make dinner tonight is probably very welcome help. So what are some of your ideas for everyone else that 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 you had shared a couple earlier with me how well, people can help out?
0: Well, Shane, absolutely. And 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 you know, I just want to thank the Canadian community. You know, thank the Canadian community. We we know you care about us. We know you care about Ukraine. We know that you want to do something. We know that it's absolutely, you know, The situation is absolutely terrifying. What I'm going to ask you to do is to um, please um, uh, do not be fearful. Ukrainians are not fearful. Um, They are not afraid of of Putin. They are not afraid. Um, they They have moved into action and that is all that matters now. So so, un, so please, um, we, we can worry later, um, but right now it's the time to act. And every action, Shane, is an important action. You matter. Every single person listening, I want you to hear something. You, you make a difference. You make a difference. You're an important person. Every single action matters. And, and you may do, do not belittle actions, you know, and so, so these are the kinds of, so first of all, you know, make the decision that you are swinging into action, that you are not going to be, you know, living in fear, looking at the phone, getting engrossed in all kinds of things that do not make a difference right now, Um, get into action mode. Um, So, Think for a moment, reflect on things, reflect on how do you want to serve? That is a different thing for every person. You know yourself, what calls to you? What comes from your heart? How do you wanna serve? What is it that you can contribute? You know, what resources do you have? Whether it's time, money, professional skills, organizational skills, or maybe you have a business and you can contribute things from your business. And so, so these are the kinds of actions that you can take. If you want to donate money, again, ask yourself, what, what do I want to donate money for? Um, so like some of the initiatives, and, and Shane, I can give you some of these links, but you mentioned, for example, people that are like, they, they feel strongly about, you know what? I want to work with a Canadian organization that's doing humanitarian aid. Um, It's the Canada Ukraine Foundation, the entire Ukrainian Canadian Congress, as you said, has partnered with this, they have 30 years of experience, and they have very low overheads, and they are on the ground. So that is who the provincial organizations have put money into. And and I urge Canadians to that want that they want the tax receipt or whatever to do that. Um, If you want to um, Get supplies and humanitarian aid to people on the ground in Ukraine. I'm going to give you the link, Shane, for that, because literally, and I'll
1: share that link by the way on our Facebook group. Yeah, yeah, because
0: literally, the Amazon of Ukraine has done an entire collaboration with businesses. Has a now opened a, a warehouse in Poland. And this is, they're doing this for free. This is not their business model. They've literally stopped their business model and they have shifted and are, it's all about giving them funds to buy things in Europe and get them into the hands of Ukrainians in Ukraine. Okay. Um, If you, if you want to donate time, there's, you know, join an organization that's already helping Ukraine, led by the Ukrainian community. If you want if you want if you're a caregiver personality then if if that's what calls to you there's so many ways to help people Shane as you said you know right now understand the Ukrainian Canadian community is hurting we have our hands full literally and emotionally we we are trying to help ukraine connect
1: one, one, Oh, that's okay. I'll let the dogs uh, so, bark. So, this is so, this is what working from home sounds like.
0: Okay, so so we so we are trying to help Ukraine. Hold on.
1: <laughs> this is what working from home sounds like. This is so good. I love okay, it. Don't okay, worry so, about so, it. So
0: so, but the Ukrainian community, we are trying to help Ukraine connect and help our loved ones in Ukraine. We're trying to stop a war, raise our kids, be there for our worried parents, and we are trying to take care of our own sick and elderly so so like we are burning out and we're yeah. the ones that are like so so do do it, that helps us if, if right. you can help us with a meal if you can help us with the groceries if you can do little things to make our lives easier so that we can do all the things that can stop this war like it's really all about pulling together right now and, mm-hmm. and, and and every little action makes a difference because you don't know you could have helped someone with their child and then that person made a call that ended up raising three hundred thousand dollars like that's what I'm talking about it's all yeah. about us pulling together right now
1: yeah. And it, I, what I'm hearing is really cool, too, is that we have a role. So I'm going to post those shiftheads.ca for the Facebook group. They'll be available there if you don't remember them. But just for a couple of quick notes so you can pass those on, the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress is fantastic. We've had uh, Oris Zeklodowski on with us before a couple of times. He's a fantastic person, and what a great leader he does there with that organization. Uh, cufoundation.ca is the Canadian-Ukraine Foundation. You can check that out as well. And um, and we often overthink this, right? What can I, can, what can I do? And if you can get in touch with the community, you can actually go and and truly help out the way that Catherine describes. Catherine Valenga is the CEO of Zerkova Vodka, and it's a Canadian vodka that is distilled uh, from Ukraine and sold here. Uh, There's two really great types, because keep in mind that we're talking profits, like all the profits, what's in the LCBO, LCBO stores is going to go to this as well. So this is not, by the way, look what these companies are doing. This is Catherine saying, this is what we're also doing. And so Zerkova 1, it's kind of like the sipping vodka if you like to legitimately be a vodka drinker. And if you are a vodka mixer, Zerkova Together is great for the Caesars and all the rest. So do that. One is red. It's a clear bottle. One is red. One is black. Uh, look for them on your shelves. And then for those who aren't in Ontario, this is your opportunity to look up some of those other links and, and maybe provide a dinner or you know run some errands or offer to help or whatever you can do. Uh, Catherine, I, I can, there's so much to learn here. This is what I meant, right? Like your family history alone is fascinating. Um, let alone the, um, the fact that uh, what we can learn about vodka and the history of vodka and all of that. We'll have to save that for another day. Zerkova Vodka, thank you for leading by example. I guess really what that boils down to. And I can hear the passion. I mean, I'm fortunate right now because I can see your face. Radio listeners can't see your face. But um, uh, so I can see the passion in your eyes. And um, But we can hear your passion in your voice about how much it matters for someone who is so deeply rooted uh, with everything in Ukraine. So thank you for that leadership. I think that we all need to see it.
0: Thank you so much, Shane. Honestly, it has been such a pleasure, and I'm so grateful for you. I'm grateful for what you do. And I think really, you know, imagine a, a, a world where we can ignite our passion, our purpose, and align that work with the work that we do. I mean, that's what I'm, that's what I'm really about. So, so, Mm. you know, this is a part of it. This is really about giving what you have to give and, and making a contribution that, that calls to you. And so, so. Yeah,
1: it's not mystical to think that anything's possible, right? Um, when you, when you start to realize what, uh, the, what power we have within. And, uh, I always say, people say, I'll oh, be strong. Don't, don't be strong in order to be strong. That means weakness is present. Just be powerful because that's deeply woven inside you. And you get to be that every day. There's no antithesis to power. You either have it or you do not have it. And, uh, it's deeply woven inside all of us. Catherine, thanks so much for sharing okay, the story. Shane, Shane, I'm it.
0: sorry. I'm going to just I, interrupt you there because uh, <laughs> I, just, I just got shivers because when we moved to Ukraine, and we yeah. started a consulting firm 25 years ago. Our yeah. slogan was, it is possible, make it happen.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful. I love it. Well, it's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you, Catherine. Thank you so much. And and uh, we'll have you back on a few weeks here because there's so many things that are going on here in the background that, that uh, there's just so much more to be shared. And I love it. And I hope other Canadian companies follow your lead.
0: You know what? I have a feeling that they will. <laughs>
1: this is the shift podcast thank you for listening to the program it's time for us to, get to connect back to ukraine and get some insight and understand how canadians can help ukrainians hannah shalist joins us again here on the shift she's been so reliable for us to come in and share in conversations so we can understand what's going on hannah is director of security programs foreign policy council ukrainian prism just google ukrainian prism on the website and you can see what they get up to there uh hannah are you there
2: Yes, uh, good night to the Canadian uh, listeners.
1: Thank you very much. Are you still in Odessa, Hannah?
2: Yes, we are still here, and uh, as for now, com- especially comparing to other parts of the country, it seems uh, more or less safe here.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting, some of the conversation about Odessa has come up. I've I've been trying to learn more about your city and the history of your city, Hannah, so I have some questions about what comes next as as Hannah has been, not Hannah, excuse me, Odessa has been warned um, to be uh, by your President Zelensky as, as, as part of the next moves coming from Russia. What's going on out your window right now, Hannah, uh, that you're seeing?
2: Um, th- this morning it is sunny even though it's very cold uh, and uh, no sirens uh, of the air defence, uh, at, at least as for now for 10, 20 of the morning that we have. Uh, the last air siren been around 10pm uh, and we heard the blast of the air defence working uh, on the seaside. We definitely have uh, regular attempts of the airstrikes, not that intense as what's been happening against Mirkolaev or Kharkiv however, it's definitely the feeling that you are on the constant high alert and we understand perfectly that for the Russian Federation it is important to keep Odessa in uh, this feeling however it would be very difficult to um, catch uh, to capture the city without capturing the uh, nearby regions because you need to have at least some kind of supply and support and just the landing operation would be impossible here
1: now you are right on the Black Sea with Odessa. Is that a concern for the citizens of your city when you look at, cause I've, I did some reading on reports of warships crossing sort of from Azov over by Crimea into that bay by Odessa and back out again and those kinds of things happening daily and being something that's being monitored.
2: Yes, surely. And we see those uh, um, boats. There are rocket boats and uh, big landing boats uh, standing uh, out of the territorial waters as for now. One of them, by the way, been uh, sank by the Ukrainian uh, um, coastal artillery um, yesterday. So uh, uh, we are in the constant control of what is happening from there because they can use uh, the missiles uh, against the uh, territory of Ukraine. But they also blocking and capturing the civilian ships uh, that are are, uh, near the territorial waters of Ukraine. You know, it's not from the Sea of Azov. You need to understand that for the last eight years after Russia uh, attempted to annex Crimea, it's been uh, militarized in it. And uh, uh, they have been not only missiles and personnel being brought there, but also additional ships and boards, including submarines. Uh, for example, the official numbers that in 2013 they had uh, two submarines and now they have seven submarines being stationed in Crimea. And from Crimea of Odessa is very close. Um, it's approximately uh, 300 miles, so, so you can understand that uh, 8 and 10 hours, depending on the type of the ship, and you can be here. Still, uh, um, as for now, uh, Russians uh, are mostly blocking by the ships, and from time to time are sending some of the missiles. We see that more of the airstrikes um, uh, tactic being chosen, as for now. Still, that have a, a huge influence, because Uh, 70% of Ukrainian experts are going uh, by sea. 60% of our grain export is going uh, by sea exactly from the ports of Odessa and nearby. And uh, uh, just for you to understand why that is important, 400 million people in the world depends on Ukrainian grains. So uh, uh, that's tremendous numbers. And uh, now we have only two weeks. It is day 13 of the war. But uh, uh, very soon that can have serious influences on the grain markets um, in the world.
1: When I was first introduced to you, uh, Hannah, I had asked Dr. Balkan Devlin what, um, what his favorite city in Ukraine was. And he had said, without a doubt, it's Odessa, hands down. It's the most fantastic city. It's the most beautiful city and the beaches and everything around there is incredibly beautiful. Can you tell me about your city and help us understand, Um, because I have questions about connections to Russia's view on Odessa um, in a second, but can you tell me about why Odessa is so special for you?
2: Um, Odessa is really quite a special city in terms of history and ethnic composition because uh, we've been uh, established at the current type of the city uh, a little bit more than 200 years ago and uh, after the Russian Turkish wars. And immediately it's been called the free port. So, no taxes, it was the Porto Franca, and uh, people from all around the world came to to build the city. That's why now when you walk the uh, streets, uh, you see the names Italian and French Boulevards. Jewish, Bulgarian, Polish, uh, uh, Greek uh, streets, Albanian streets... That uh, shows you how the city being composed, with the first uh, um, mayor being uh, Catalan from Spain, and uh, the next one being Greek, uh, and so on and so on. That's why this multi-ethnicity of the city really built both the um, appearance of the city, the buildings, uh, how you see the architecture here, and at the same time the moods and perceptions of the world by the locals. Even in the Soviet Union time, this city being very liberal as the seaport, as uh, with all these um, multi-ethnic traditions, what we call Odessa cuisine. It is a crazy mix of Mediterranean, Balkans, Ukrainian uh, um, cuisine. And we've been really proud of this. We've been Russian-speaking city, but that came uh, on the one hand historically uh, because of this multi-ethnicity. On the other hand, just uh, as Soviet policy. Uh, But that's why uh, for Russia they created these myths of Odessa Odessa has been pro-Russian city or something like this because it's been the third biggest city in the Russian Empire. And because of the Russian language uh, use, and uh, because many of those who became uh, um, glorious poets or writers in the uh, Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, uh, they were born here. They were born or spent their time um, in Odessa, and uh, that's th- that's really make it complicated. Because it seems to me that uh, uh, Greeks, uh, for example, have not less connections with Odessa as their liberation revolution in the nineteenth century started exactly from. Uh, Odessa, or Jewish community, because many of the Israeli leaders uh, of the state, those who built the state, uh, had their roots and connections uh, with Odessa. It's it been just the appropriation of the history that uh, Russians being been so active within the last uh, um, century that now, unfortunately, we see the results of.
1: Well, I invite everybody to get onto Google and go to, you know, search Odessa or Ukraine, go find Odessa on the Black Sea and do the street view around the beaches, like Hannah, it's absolutely stunning. Um it's so beautiful to see and um and take a little tour, I guess, with today's technology that we can do that. Now the way I understood it, Hannah, was that there was always been a special place in Russians' hearts for Edessa that it was sort of the uh, the beautiful destination that you, in the old world, could go to and still be sort of close to home and go to the vacation spot and enjoy Edessa. Now, if I have this wrong, please correct me. And some of the belief is, is that if Russia were to start shelling and bombing Edessa, politically, that would not go over well for Russians because of this history of Edessa- When it was the USSR uh, all those years ago. Do I understand that correctly? Because I know that with the Russian speaking uh, families, there's quite a few, right? It's, It's quite, quite common. So do I understand that right? That politically, this could be a big nightmare for what Russia says they're trying to do?
2: We really hope for this. Uh, for you to understand, before 2014, so before Russia annexed uh, Crimea and started war in Ukraine, we had uh, two Odessa, five flights per day from Moscow. Not speaking mm-hmm. about flights from uh, St. Petersburg or about trains or cars uh, coming here. So it's been really popular destination for many people um, in uh, Moscow. People have been even buying property here as their summer houses. Uh, at the same time, for the last eight years, it's been changing a lot uh, because of uh, different uh, reasons. Uh, They've been not so welcomed. First of all, the second, we stopped uh, air connection between Ukraine and uh, uh, Russia for the last six years, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, um, as for now, uh, our hopes are really that uh, for the Russian armed forces, for the Russian leadership, uh, they will understand the risks uh, that are very high in case photos of the destroyed Odessa would come to the Russian public. But at the same time, honestly, with each day of the war, I'm starting to be less and less sure in any type of the rationality coming from uh, uh, the Kremlin, uh, considering how many schools been bombed, considering that yesterday, for example, they bombed the Church of the Russian Patriarchy, the historical building in the Zhutomir region. And you know that Russians been always so proud of their religion and Moscow patriarchy and their influence, and suddenly they bombed uh, one of their own churches. So that gives me the signs that they don't, the, the only strategy they have is the humiliation of the people are uh, bringing panic and destruction of ukraine both at the statehood and uh, um at the territory that's why uh, i always leave this uh, reasonable doubt uh, i don't know even how many percentage that nothing can stop uh, mr putin in case he made this uh decision
1: yeah uh, hope is uh most powerful thing but it's also a terrible plan right and um it, it's the powerful thing that can keep people alive, but sometimes you have to keep that reasonable doubt in there just to make sure that you're okay. Can you help us understand? Cause you're an Odessa, Hannah Shaylist. And uh, by the way, just so you know, uh, one of Hannah's stands in her professional life is, uh, to be like clarity of information and, and, uh, news that, that transfers around with, um, with the organization. So it's important to understand that part with Ukrainian prism. So. How far away is when we look at, um, when we look at this, how far away is Mikhailov for driving? If you were to drive it time wise and, and can you help us understand what's going on there? Cause if I understand correctly, that is the, the biggest city close by that is having trouble with Russia.
2: Um, that is approximately 150 kilometers if by roads uh, uh directly it is a little bit less because you need to like make a little bit of circle uh, through the lake uh, but uh, that's definitely it's very important and historical town that is the the uh, uh, birthplace of Ukrainian uh, shipyards, so this city have been always famous for their shipyards, for their seaport. It's much smaller than Odessa, but also very important uh, strategically for uh, Ukraine. And th- that is the next region to, to us. So why is uh, also important? Because if you look to the map, you have Crimea w- just in the middle of the Black Sea, where you have the huge concentration of the Russian forces, approximately thirty thousand personnel, a huge amount of ships. Uh, tanks, uh, strategic missiles, and all other types of weapons. Then you have like the line to the um, west, and that is first the town of Kherson, uh, the seaport, important place that Russians captured. However, the people are going to the demonstrations, so Russians cannot say that they really are keeping the city. Then the next town is Mikolaev, uh, where the airstrikes started. The city is under control of the Ukrainian armed forces, but airstrikes are um, happening daily. And the next one are we. So we, uh, to have the uh, proper um, uh, operation for capturing Odessa, you need to have these uh, Broad open for the Russian forces, so they would have support uh, from uh, Crimea in terms of personal, in terms of armor, uh, uh, equipment and all other stuff, because from other side, we have um, the Transnistria, and uh, over there, at least as for now, we closed uh, the um, Russian forces that are illegally stationed at the territory of uh, Moldova. And uh, from the north, as for now, we are safe because uh, uh, the fightings are happening uh, somewhere around uh, Zhutomir and Kiev, and uh, Kiev is 500 kilometers from here. Still, Mm -hmm. we see that airstrikes are happening just in the middle of the road between Odessa and Kiev.
1: Yeah. Can you help me understand Moldova? We hear a lot about people going to Moldova. Uh, but yet there are Russian soldiers, if I'm correct, that are stationed there that everybody knows about not involved in this conversation. So is that a, cause we hear a lot about, you know, sort of what's next and Moldova might be on that list. Now I don't want you to speculate of course, but you do get clear information from inside Ukraine. Is that a concern of anybody coming from the other side, from the West side of Odessa?
2: uh moldova is the wonderful small state uh, uh that uh, been also part of the soviet union well and uh, um uh, this, the size of moldova it is approximately the size of odessa region uh still they as for now accepted something like 100000 refugees from ukraine and they're really helping however moldova had their own um, the conflict in the beginning of 90s as a result of which the separatist district of uh, transnistria appeared and that is the uh narrow line between uh, um, Ukraine and Moldova. The problem is that all the separatism and everything happened there because the Russian army, uh, since Soviet time, been stationed there. And by now, uh, for 2022, we have 1,500 uh, Russian soldiers being stationed uh, there illegally, because according to the OSCE agreement, uh, Russia back in 1999 promised to withdraw these weapons over there but they've been manipulating and using it uh, in their politics uh, all these years the problem is that on the one hand 1500 that's not that small on the other side uh, the equipment they have are in the quite a bad uh, um, condition so it's not something that uh, it's really strong power being there plus many of those who are serving there they have russian passports but they are locals because russians were not able to make the uh, normal turnover of the, of the people, of the personnel there. So as for now, the information that we are receiving from the district, and we are really following the situation very carefully there, that uh, uh, the leadership of this region uh, is not eager to fight, uh, they definitely don't want to have any shellings at their territory. And everything is so close. So from Odessa to Transnistria is 50 kilometers. So you understand how close that is. And also uh, that the locals who are serving at the Russian forces being stationed there are not that much willing to fight for the Russia as for now, because like to receive salary is one, uh, to fight and die, it is completely
1: different. What are some of the other uh, pieces that I'm missing in this conversation, Hannah Shalist? Because I, I, we've heard stories about... And it's, it's hard to filter through. Um, we've heard stories about a couple of generals now that Ukraine has claimed that they have uh, died from Russia, Russian generals, which is a big deal in, in the land of warfare. We also heard that the hacker group Anonymous had hacked into Russian television and started playing streams of independent news coming out of Ukraine into Russian homes for the first time. So I thought I would just openly ask, you know, what, what am I, what have we not uh caught into in this conversation that's that's left over that you're hearing that matters
2: um, you're right that we hear more and more about additional support. You need probably to think about the international legion that now Ukraine uh, started to have. That is the volunteers from all around the world who signed their contracts with Ukrainian armed forces. Ukraine never had it before. And uh, now a lot of, of the retired military uh, really wanted to help Ukraine. By the numbers Ministry of Foreign Affairs presented to us, it is people from 52 countries in the number of approximately 17 thousand uh, people those wow. who already either arrived or on their way uh, as far as from Japan so you can imagine that that's not only our uh, like neighbors uh, who always been with us that's a lot of Americans and uh, uh, British uh, um, uh, Marines are joining but uh, I know uh, from our embassy that we have even Japanese who wanted to, to serve and to help uh, the Ukraine and that's probably demonstrating the real understanding and support that we have now even from the professional military they are not mercenaries uh they are people who sign contracts with the armed forces uh because they understand uh, uh, th- this war is probably the most black and white in the last uh, um, 20 years that we saw in the world that's why we have such a support from uh, military abroad
1: i'm assuming they would probably come in through poland for the most part
2: Uh, Yes, uh, as for now, that is uh, the the way through Poland or theoretically you can come through Moldova as well. That depends on the logistics because Moldova, by the way, closed their airspace uh, the same day as Ukraine. So uh, this small country are now suffering also without the um, connection with the world uh, because they are afraid of any incidents um, with the Russian missiles. However, still there is routes from the West are opened and the coordination of the logistics is happening happening because the humanitarian aid is also coming with these roots
1: Seventeen thousand people from around the world coming back to ukraine or maybe for the first time to take a stand and fight for the ukrainian people it's staggering information thank you very much for being with us again hannah we we love uh your clarity and your love for odessa in ukraine it's contagious we can feel it i can feel it in the way that you speak about it and i really appreciate that and um, and I'm very grateful for you to be here. Please stay safe, and uh, we look forward to connecting again soon.
2: Thanks a lot for the invitation. Always glad, and I hope that you one day be able to see everything by your own eyes.
0: This is The Shift Podcast.
1: I'll start this by sharing how grateful I am for the interesting and fascinating people that I've been able to meet through this process and and I know that that's perhaps uh, a maybe a silly look at at war but isn't that really kind of what war does? It brings, starts to bring people together. Now, for me, I've been able to do it from the comfort and luxury of, of my workspace. And for other people, they're meeting people uh, because they are refugees or they're signing up to volunteer or so many different things. And another person that I've been able to meet through this is Dr. Evgenia Geber, uh, who joins us now. Yevgenia, uh, you are back in, you're in Canada now
3: exactly you, i'm yeah uh, and
1: you were in Insta- uh, uh, istanbul before this
3: yeah uh, hi hello thank you for the invitation uh, currently not in uh before this in istanbul so i'm now based there for an indefinite period of time looking forward to getting back to ukraine once i can do that
1: and your background your family is ukraine and you've worked there as well
3: yeah uh, originally i'm from odessa so from this kind of uh russian-speaking but very ukrainian city um, of odessa my parents are still there Um, i myself was based in Kiev because i've been working for ukrainian government for some period of time and before that as a diplomat for ukrainian mfa so both cities are kind of native cities to me
1: so uh can we start with that conversation about your parents in odessa this must be incredibly difficult for you to not be able to be there and still working from the outside um, and to watch what your family and your parents are going through. Are they okay? Are they still in a place where... I know Odessa has been under some compression more so lately uh, the last few days than it has been. Is everybody okay? Uh,
3: Yes, thank you. They are currently okay. But as you say, it's so difficult to be outside of your uh, native country, not to be able to see your parents, even though I have phone conversations with them regularly. I believe that uh, most of us experts who are uh, now either in different cities of Ukraine, which are more or less safe, like in the Western Ukraine, for example, or outside of the country, we all have this conflicts of survivor feeling guilty conscience for not being inside Ukraine, like in Kiev or other cities. But on the other hand, uh, we all try to be uh, in those places. and. Uh, in uh, those positions where we can be the most useful for ukraine and for Ukrainian resistance so i believe that now those experts who have uh, an opportunity to spread the word to talk to people to comment on developments in ukraine uh, including to international media can be much more effective once they don't really have this pressure on being inside ukraine and waiting for, for the occupation
1: it must be conflicting um you have your family you obviously have friends and colleagues that are there, uh, like you said, wishing that you were there. At the same time, when it comes to foreign policy, politics in general, and um, and creating reform, I suppose, inside the systems of Ukraine, uh, you know, I, I believe that Ukraine is going to come out of this as a sovereign state. I I, I truly do. I, I think that that's just not going to be an option. Um, this really is going to be, if you look at it as a policy person, Do you look forward at the future 10 years from now and say that Ukraine is going to grow to be such a strong place out of this? Or is it impossible to take that view right now?
3: Well, absolutely. I would not even go for a 10 years perspective. I think that Ukraine uh, has already won this war in the terms that uh, independently of what we have on the ground, in terms of nation building processes, in terms of uh, national identity, in terms of uh, our resilience, uh, our unity as society, our international image also, public diplomacy, strategic communications, we have won this war so far. We we managed to, to win the hearts and minds of people all over the world. And it's tremendous how people in different parts of the world, in Europe, in Latin America, the US and Canada supports us so for me uh, though we do have a lot of problems in Ukraine as you might know we have all these different kinds of voices uh, and uh, criticisms because we are democracy and because we do have this plurality of thoughts and nonetheless uh, we have uh, record high levels of support to our government to our armed forces and the way how our society is now all working for this victory uh, to actually defend Ukraine not only as a state, as a state with its own sovereignty in domestic politics, but also as an equal uh, subject and member of international community, not this way of objectization of Ukraine, the way Russia puts it, Uh, not to have puppet government, not to be limited in our foreign policy choices, not to uh, be uh, forced to recognize all these kind of terror organizations in Ukraine. This is what we are all working for, and I believe that we have become much, much stronger since February 24. It's another stage. We had this hybrid war since uh, eight years. We have been in this state of hybrid war, so we have learned how to be resilient, but still, uh, since this newest invasion of Russia, I believe that we have already uh, become a better version of ourselves.
1: Well, uh, the world is learning, uh, you know, I, we have learned here on our show, The Shift, more about Ukraine in the last couple of weeks than, than I ever could have imagined. Um, and I, I will confess this, Evgenia, that I thought Ukraine was on the other side of that sort of peninsula for the ocean, so I didn't realize it was the Black Sea that it was on. So and I, I openly admit that because I want everyone else who also didn't know that. To be able to say, you know what? I didn't know that either. And so now that we've been able to learn more and more about the magic behind the people, holy, and the uh, and the culture, and how it is distinctly different than Russia, even though closely related uh, on that eastern that eastern border, how remarkable it is! Uh, so I, I can't help that. But your background, uh, my understanding is uh, is is quite driven around the Black Sea and all all of that. Uh, you know, political view. And that must be incredibly complicated, because that's where that Russian speaking Ukrainian, um, as I best understand it, please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just learning this too. But that's where that population really does sit. I mean, Mariupol has been uh, overrun, uh, as far as we know now. Then, of course, you know, everything to do with Azov has been shut down. Um, And then you've got everything on the Black Sea where you have Odessa, that's uh, quite well protected yet quite vulnerable at the same time because it's right there on the Black Sea too. What's your look at, at the Black Sea and, and the, the way that it the role that it plays in this conversation because I, I have a sneaking suspicion that the Black Sea access is an important part of this. Uh,
3: well 100% uh, if you remember the history of uh, Russian Empire even before the Soviet Union during the Empire times, This dream of access to the warm water seas and to the straits, that has been an eternal dream of Russia. So domination in the Black Sea Basin, in the Black Sea region in general, uh, has always been something that Putin and uh, all Russian leaders before him were dreaming of and seeing in their dreams. Uh, Of course, the south of Ukraine has specific strategic importance for Russia. Uh, One reason for that is because in this way you can control the Black Sea Basin in general, but also use uh, the occupied Crimea, for example, or occupied south of Ukraine As a stronghold for power projection into the Mediterranean, which is also very important for Russia. Uh, Second reason why this part of Ukraine is specifically important for Russia, because they actually want to unite the already occupied parts of the east of Ukraine through Mariupol, Berdansk, and other seaports to the occupied Kherson and then uh, via Odessa to the Transnistria region, which also has the Russian uh, armed forces in uh, Moldova. Uh, There is, of course, this economic factor to that because uh, more than 70 percent of Ukrainian exports uh, are being made via seaports. So once you have this blockade from sea, you can also have a very negative impact on Ukrainian economy. So you basically block any kind of foreign trade and foreign economic ties for Ukraine. Uh, last but not least, uh, there has always been this and narrative promoted by Russians that especially in the eastern and southern parts of Ukraine, the Russian-speaking population would necessarily... Uh, support Russian invasion, would uh, welcome Russian soldiers with flowers, would uh, ask them for a kind of a defense of a Russian speaking population and so on, which was um, in previous years, a huge miscalculation of uh, Russian political leadership. And in current situation, I believe that those soldiers who are just being sent here to Ukraine by Russia and who who have been that much brainwashed to believe in these myths and narratives, they just face an absolutely different reality. When these Russian-speaking populations of uh, such cities as Odessa, Kherson, Nikolaev, all others in the south of Ukraine, they just take to the streets They are being shot by Russian soldiers. They, with bare hands, they try to stop tents. They try to stop armored vehicles. And they sing national anthems, though they are Russian speakers in normal life, just to support Ukraine and Ukrainian territorial integrity. Because it's not about culture. It's not about language. It's not about any kind of this affinity or uh, close cultures. We really were so different. And the biggest difference between Ukraine and Russia is that we cannot live under occupation, we are a free nation, and that's something that Russians would probably never understand, and uh, that has been one of the major miscalculations, I believe.
1: Well, yeah, and I, I would imagine that it's not even that they don't understand. It's probably not even possible in their mind, right? Like that they don't even know that they don't know that this is possible. Like it doesn't even exist for them. Uh, it's it's a remarkable notion, and and I, I think of those Russian soldiers walking into places like Mariupol and thinking that they're going to walk in and be welcomed, that they were, you know, saviors, and then all of a sudden everybody's throwing Molotov cocktails at them, and what a surprise that would be to challenge your government and, and and think, well, wait a second. Why are we here? These people don't want us here. Now, um, uh, Dr. Evgenia Gaber is uh, in Ottawa at the moment, works in Istanbul, is from Ukraine. Your parents are in Odessa. And your parents are Russian-speaking, yes.
3: Yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Is it complicated for them? What is? What do you, as their child? I mean, you're still you're still the daughter, right? As much as you're an absolute, um, you know, leader and professional in in this this conversation about the policy. Um, but you, how, how's the look as the daughter at your parents? Is it complicated for them being Russian-speaking and from that old world and still trying to create this new world, or are they? Um, very committed or by nature or by culture into what the new world of Ukraine looks like. Is it hard for them?
3: Uh, I would not say that we have any kind of a new world in Ukraine. Uh, and the, the whole story about this uh, uh, new kind of nationalistic Ukrainian Ukraine uh, is just something that uh, is not true. Because we have been speaking uh, any languages we knew for years and years since 1991 when we gained our independence from the Soviet Union. Many of my friends are Ukrainian speakers. Many of my friends and the parents are Russian speakers. And very often you have families where someone would address you in Ukrainian and the other member of the family would just uh, answer in Russian. Uh, we have so many, especially in Odessa region, we have so many different uh, ethnicities, national- nationalities, Turks, Tatars, Greeks, Armenians. That's what Odessa has always been famous for, where multicultural we're a multinational, so there is not even an issue or a question of living in uh, old reality or new reality. The only thing we're trying to do now is to preserve our, our independence. And I believe more and more that uh, we had it technically in 1991 after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, but we are gaining this independence uh, actually in the events of 2014 with the first Euromaidan and now in 2022 with this war, this is actually uh, defending ourselves and our rights to speak whatever language you want. I can give you uh, very briefly my own example. I have academic background. So I was teaching in in Odessa University for seven years before I joined uh, diplomatic service. And I was teaching in Russian language with Ukrainian being official state language. I was teaching my courses in Russian. So it's not even a question. And of course, my parents, they support Ukraine as much as all others do. Uh, Again, it's important to understand even those who might um, have this more pro-Russian stance in foreign policy, they uh, still uh, defend Ukrainian independence and sovereignty and territorial integrity as a state. And uh, even if someone would not like maybe to join NATO or the EU, it does not mean that automatically he or she would welcome Russian soldiers with boots on the ground in Ukraine. That's
1: a very good point. Very good point. Um, Do you, um, as a young person, I mean, you've studied this and um, you, with your parents around, does, I see amazing right? With what I, I imagine in my mind, your parents, what they've been through generations before that. I mean, um, 2014, 2022, you know, those are those are important dates that'll go down in history. Your parents have been through an awful lot as well. Uh, it's amazing when we look at what our parents have come through to create for us in our lives, that, that sounds very amazing when you speak about it that way. That statement that you made, speak whatever language we like, that makes me feel like your parents and their generation in Ukraine is quite remarkable.
3: They are, and we're so grateful to, to the previous generations of uh, Ukrainians, to our parents, of course, but even to early generations, because the whole uh, history of Ukraine has been a history of struggle for our national identity. Uh, during the Soviet times, for example, in 1920s, 1930s, and not many people know those facts, but the Holodomor, which is the artificial famine femi- uh, being created by Uh, Moscow, in order to actually purge uh, Ukrainian so called nationalistic forces, uh, deportations of uh, Crimean Tatars and other ethnic minorities, all the pressure which has been um, done to uh, our elites, to our intellectual elites, uh, scientists, engineers, artists, that was basically a very a specific policy by by the Kremlin, by Soviet Moscow to um, undermine Ukrainian national identity and to have this uh, Orwell-style society when everyone is dressed like everyone and there is just this gray uh, mass of people not knowing who they are, where they want to head. And it's uh, thanks to our previous uh, generations of Ukrainians back then, who survived and who still had this Ukrainian identity in their blood and in their DNA. And thanks to our parents who actually allowed us to live and to enjoy our lives as free people. And that is actually uh, why now we have this will and this uh, freedom and this courage to take to the streets and uh, to protest against uh, Russians uh, on tanks with uh, rocket launchers. And we're just, uh, you know, have flags and then with bare hands, try to stop them in the streets, even on the occupied territories.
1: I, what I hear, this is, I think, really cool, is what your parents have done and that generation has done is they've given us you, right? I mean, you as you as Evgenia, as a professional who is an absolute expert in the Baltic Sea and policy and all those things, you've been from Ukraine to Istanbul to Canada for for your work and and then going back to istanbul again that probably wasn't possible uh 30 years ago and 40 years ago and um and now it is and that's what they've given us so that's one specific example of how we're lucky for all of the work they've done
3: and that's uh, so great to feel yourself a part of this civilized world and of this uh, western society who have their values, who have uh, their freedoms, who have their human rights and uh, who have been treated like uh, like humans, actually. Unfortunately, and they have many relatives in Russia, again, because we have all these ties and connections to Russian society, and they just don't know uh, what it means to feel this way. So as you say, I'm absolutely grateful to everyone who has contributed to this fight for Ukrainian uh, freedom, but also for Ukrainian free choice. And that choice was with the transatlantic community, with the uh, European societies and with the civilized world who respect the choices of any free individual, starting from language and cuisine up to career, up to the uh, lifestyles, up to the ways you behave, and uh, the way of uh, your own life.
1: It's very exciting to look at it from that perspective, and you can—I think—you start to understand the passion that comes from these people in Ukraine, and and why they they have so much uh, that they believe and fight for. It's—I've learned a lot about myself from this, and I don't want to make this about me, but boy, oh, boy, uh, Ukrainians are inspiring to me. Uh, Dr. Yevgenia Gaber. Uh, I would love to bring you back on because I have so many questions just about the Black Sea in general, about Moldova and the tone in Moldova, Romania, Bulgaria. I mean, Istanbul's kind of just across the water from everything that's going on where you are. So uh, I hope you can come back and uh, teach us more about, you know, the just the the regional politics and the impact of this beyond Ukraine as well. Because if the Black Sea is so valuable, uh, that, that leads me to believe that there's more to learn. So... Uh, and I also want to acknowledge you've worked so hard because you've come from Istanbul and your time zones and the jet lag and and trying to make all this work and how hard you've worked to to be here with us. Thank you for all of that. I do appreciate it.
3: Thank you for the invitation and thank you for the tremendous support that we get. And I will be happy to meet for any other program and other talk. Uh, always. Uh, thank you so much and uh, hope to meet in better times again.